It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, vocalist Mick Cancer of the Sick Kids. I remember the first time we ever played live, we opened for the Cramps at the Hot Club. I had done acting in college, so I had been on stage before, you know, it wasn't foreign to me. The other three had never done anything like this in their lives, you know. So I remember in the dressing room before we went on, I just said to them, look, whatever happens out there, act like you're the Rolling Stones. And <laughs> off we went. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, leave comments for us there, or email us at fun to know podcast, always with a numeral two, at gmail.com. You can help out the show by leaving a review at our iTunes page. On today's show, Mike Ferguson, a.k.a. Mick Cancer of the punk band The Sick Kids. The Sick Kids, the brainchild of Mike Ferguson, were willed into existence as a literary prank come to life. The band can make their claim as being Philadelphia's first punk band as that cultural revolution blew its shockwave out from New York City and across the globe. The Sick Kids were fueled by Mike's deep love of music, being a witness to the birth of rock and roll in the 1950s, to the counterculture revolutions of the 60s, to the southern pop of the 70s, and the original punk wave as the 1970s turned into the 80s. With The Sick Kids and his extravagantly theatrical alter ego Mick Cancer, Mike has turned a fan's love into a slow but steady stream of potently fun recordings with the band's Pink Slip Daddy, Dash Yahoo's, and most recently, the country punk of Dixie Blood, where he has been redubbed Clarence Cancer. He's a longtime collaborator with popular producer and performer Ben Vaughn and Palmyra Delran of the New York City band The Frigs, and has shared intimate friendships with the late legends Alex Chilton and Lux Interior of The Cramps. I first met Mike as he worked at the Richmond Brothers Record Distributor in the late 80s where he was an invaluable instructor personally in my love of the art of jazz and I couldn't be more pleased to spend some time talking to Mike about his musical career and a couple of new projects coming our way. Let's start things off with what I always thought was one of the great rock and roll anthems, Pink Slip Daddy's song, Teenage Obsession. I got a feeling down deep in my soul, I'm gonna live never grow old I'll be standing at the edge of time I'll be singing this rock and roll Gotta break down now and make this confession Listen baby cause I ain't messing I don't think I'm gonna learn the lesson Possessed by a teenage obsession. I've been hearing you gotta be a man. Take responsibility in hand. But I say, honey, that will never, never be. Adolescence is the only a place for me. Break down now and make this confession Listen honey, cause I ain't messing I don't think I'm gonna learn the lesson I'm possessed by a teenage obsession Don't wanna work, I 
Thanks for uh, coming to the microphone and talking to us today, hey, Mike. Thanks again, Dan. Nice <laughs> to see you again. Uh, you grew up in South Jersey uh, area, which became a hub of the of the music industry with the American Bandstand program and beyond. Did you know you were this close to where the, the, the rock music was being made at this point? Well, sure, I did. Uh, I, I, w- I was real fortunate. Uh, I was born in 1946. So if you do the math, I was 10 years old in 1956 when um, you know Elvis first appeared on television. Bandstand was at that time a local show uh, emceed by a, a fellow named Bob Horn, pre, uh, pre-Dick Clark era. You know, I was hearing all this music by uh, Bill Haley and the Comets and um, 
the Platters and uh, Elvis, of course, Carl Perkins. The list is endless, goes on and on and on. Were you buying records at this point? Well, I was. I, I went to a, a Catholic school, a Catholic elementary school in uh, Merchantville, New Jersey, and I would fastidiously save my milk money every day so that on Friday I could stop at this little Hallmark card place uh, that had a little spindle of 45s, and I would uh, stand there and count my money to make sure I had the proper 95 cents or whatever it was to buy 45 each each Friday. And it, it was a, a torturous experience because I could, could never decide whether I wanted the new Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry or Fats Domino or whatever. But then I would come home with my, my prized little record and uh, play it endlessly. And I had two uh, uh, girls who were a couple years older than me that lived a, a, across the street from me. And they schooled me on a lot of rock and roll early stuff. They taught me how to dance, how to jitterbug, and, and we would watch um, Bandstand pretty much every day. It's, it's great that they were female mentors, you know. So many yeah. of these musical mentors are, are obsessed guys, but uh, yeah, nice yeah. to get a, a girl's point of view. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and they were, they were uh, great, great ladies, as I remember them. We kind of lost our way, of course, along the years, and I... And I Never really heard from them again, but they they were uh, central in my you know the formation of my love of music and, and and rock and roll specifically. So yeah, I mean the Philadelphia area was was a, a very happening thing at that point in time. Uh, it, it's as much the you know the birthplace of rock and roll as as anywhere uh, you know New Orleans or Memphis or. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I was even looking at uh, you know Swan Records, which I think released the first Beatles forty five. Exactly. Just yeah. a few blocks from my house in Philadelphia was their was their headquarters. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you even were uh, we talked about this before. You were aware of the time when Buddy Holly died. I was. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, a, a very impactful moment, a great tragedy. You know, it was hard to know who these people were because you didn't see them on television other than Ed Sullivan all that frequently. You'd listen to the radio a lot, you know. It was more, uh, it, it was a, it was an audio medium rather than visual back then. There's something primarily. ephemeral about that, it just sort of coming over the airwaves and disappearing as well. Sure, and I can remember, you know, I would go to bed at night and, uh, you know, turn the lights out and I would have... Uh, I guess it was WIBG even back then, maybe, but the local radio stations, and, and I would just listen to these magical records coming on at night, and uh, it was just a whole world opening up, you know, and uh, I, I felt a pr really privileged, and do feel privileged, to, to have been there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, sort of week after week these records suddenly appearing, thinking about all, all the soul records and Motown uh, arriving and... Uh, uh, just one of the most exciting times in, in popular music imaginable. Well, again, it was a great time to be alive. You know, the, the whole era of the 50s and 60s, uh, it, was, it was sort of like just saying to yourself, wow, I've been waiting for this all my life. You know, let's go, <laughs> you know, with all this stuff. So you, uh, you headed out to college uh, in the late 60s, was it? Actually, I left for college in 1965. I went to North Carolina to a Southern Baptist school, which will remain unnamed. I went to North Carolina, you know, expecting uh, life to be pretty much like I'd seen it up here. You know, my friends and peers were at that point into the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Dave Clark Five, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when I got down south, it 
became readily apparent that that hadn't had the same impact down there that it did up here. I mean, people were aware of it, sure, but the music that they were playing was primarily Motown, the Supremes, and uh, beach music, which uh, I guess is a form of R&B music. I, I remember there was a band called the Tams, who uh, later went on to some national notoriety. What and, kind of fool do you think I am? Yep. Uh, <laughs> produced by Joe South, I believe, or oh, written really? by Joe South. Amazing, perhaps. amazing record. But yeah, great. And a great band, really. But, uh, you know, at the time, it was a little bit shocking. Uh, I went down there with long hair, you know, and that, that really wasn't what was going on down there. Uh, so I, I, I had some interesting experiences along the way. You know. Were you able to, to, to meld into this culture at all? or? Well, eventually, you know, I mean, as time went on, uh, more and more people from the north and other places began to come to school in, in the southern states. So, you know, uh, after a while, little pockets of, of hippiedom would, would sprout up all over the place. And at the particular school that I uh, initially went to, um, there were about maybe 15 or 20 freaks, you know, and, and we all bonded together and had our little lifestyle going on. Although, you know, we were probably considered uh, outcasts at the time, pretty much. What were you there to study? Well, it was liberal arts. I mean, I, I was interested in English primarily, uh, and I had a, a vague notion of wanting to be a writer. I had been the um, editor of my uh, high school newspaper and was kind of pursuing a life along those lines, although it wasn't real defined to me yet. You know? yeah. And I guess the, the Vietnam War would have been... Uh Nipping at people's heels at that point as well. Uh, more than nipping, one might say. Uh, yeah, uh, and I, I actually left uh, the school that I uh, had first gone to and uh, transferred to the North Carolina School of the Arts, uh, just a phenomenal institution with great teachers and, and great uh, guest artists like uh, Aaron Copeland and uh, Agnes DeMille, the dance instructor, Andre Previn, all kinds of people just passing through. Uh, I graduated from there in 1971 with a degree of, in creative writing. Concurrently, uh, I uh, did get drafted, actually. Back in those days, a lot of people don't know about this. The young people especially don't know about the draft and conscription and everything. You used to have to register for the draft when you turned 18 years old. And, of course, during the mid-60s, the Vietnam War was escalating. And we had this thing that, that they were referred to as student deferments. Uh, you were allowed to go to school for another year. And then eventually, if you didn't graduate, your deferments w would run out. And because I had transferred, I'd lost some credits in, in, uh, along the way. So uh, my, defer my uh, student deferment did run out. And I actually literally did get drafted. At which point, I decided to apply for a conscientious objectorship, which uh, is basically saying that uh, you would not pick up arms, you would not use violence, you would not kill someone. I agreed uh, you know, with the draft board that I would do clerical work or whatever necessary, but I was not you know, going to kill someone, essentially. Did you appear in front of a judge? And well, it wasn't a judge, case? per se. Uh, you, know, you had to write out a, 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 a kind of a thesis as, as to why you objected to war. Uh, I ultimately, I had to go before a panel of the draft board, which consisted of, I believe it was three or four elderly gentlemen. I had had shoulder-length hair, uh, decided to cut it off to an acceptable length, wore a suit and tie. And uh, at that same time, there was also a pretty serious network of 
draft dodgers or people who, who were concerned about the war and were discovering ways to help people avoid the draft, essentially. Uh, so I contacted uh, these folks and, and got pretty well schooled as to what to expect in front of the draft board, what kind of questions I might be asked. So I, I was pretty prepared to, to go in there, uh, all, although nonetheless was a dawning experience. I did, however, end up getting the, the uh, conscientious objectorship. What, what, was, what was daunting about it? Well, you know, you're sitting there. I, I mean, I, I, w- my, I was married at the time, my first wife, and uh, through the, uh, the, the network that I had be- become familiar with, I was ready to leave the country. I, my wife and I were prepared to leave for Canada uh, if, if I didn't get the, uh, the conscientious objector status. So, you know, I mean, it was a little worrisome. I didn't want to have to leave the country. I didn't want to feel like I didn't have a country, a home anymore. I didn't want to leave my parents, my friends. So, you know, I, after the, the experience of going before the draft board, you had to wait about six weeks before you found out. So, you know, it was a pretty tense time for me. But I did get it. Uh, I graduated from college uh, on a Friday and... Um, Next Monday, I started a two-year tenure at a uh, uh, hospital where I had to do alternative service for wow. two years. Did you get paid for this? Fifty dollars a week. Yeah, I had a friend who actually did the same thing and, and ended up working in an art museum. I don't know how he got that gig, <laughs> and I got the laundry gig. But nonetheless, um, at the same time, however, when I'd graduated from uh, the North Carolina School of the Arts, I'd done I'd done very well there, and. Um, kind of found my way towards what I thought I might want to do in my life. And I was offered a writing fellowship from the University of North Carolina. Um, unfortunately, uh, because I had to do this alternative service and it was kind of a full-time thing, I was unable to accept it. Oh, wow, so that was the only real bummer about it. You know, I mean, I was prepared to do the alternative service. I, it didn't bother me to have to do that. I felt like I was serving my country in, in my own way and the best I could. And I, I'm not ashamed of it. You know, I mean, I, I, I did what I felt I had to do at the time. I'm, I myself, at, you know, 16, 17, had to register for the uh, selective service. And this was right as uh, Reagan was, was gearing up all the rhetoric. And I myself contacted the Conscientious Objectors Board and, and sort of laid the groundwork for a future Conscientious Objector case for myself at that uh-huh. time. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. It's funny, along the way, I've met a few people, um, most notably probably um, Carl Wilson, one time from the Beach Boys at a Beach Boys show, uh, we uh, I managed to be backstage and we began talking. He was also a conscientious objector, oh, wow. so we talked about our experiences. <laughs> and every time I met someone who was, it was kind of a common bond that you had, a shared experience. As an aside, probably the funniest thing, uh, I, I don't know how far I should go with this, but uh, <laughs> the day that I went in before the draft board, I had to, um, w- when I came out, you know, I was a Pretty, uh, I was pretty wiped out from the experience, just you know, emotionally and, and uh, not knowing what was going to happen or anything. And I had come up from North Carolina to New Jersey to go to, before the draft board. So I came back to my parents' house where I was staying for a few days, and uh, I, I was just like real nervous and uptight. So I said, well, I'm going to go buy a record. You know, I need to <laughs> do something fun here. So I went to a record store, and I... Um, a, a, a one-running the, thread through your life, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> good, good way to, to calm yourself down after you know, something bad happens. 
and I saw this record by a, a band called the Stooges, called Iggy and the Stooges, who I'd heard of but never heard, and it was called Funhouse, and it had this really garish, crazy, great-looking cover. So I said, well, why not? I took it home and uh, enjoyed uh, a little bit before I put it on the uh, the turntable, as, you know, some uh, something to make me feel a little better. <laughs> Gatefold sleeve to open up, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and that wonderful picture of Iggy on the rug and the Stooges around him, you know. <laughs> so I put the record on, and um, it l pretty much changed my life, you know. Uh, it was the perfect record to hear under that circumstance. It was cathartic. It was um, cleansing, uh, and it, it set me free. And I remember uh, interviewing Iggy several years later and uh, actually opening for him at one point, and... Uh, having conversations and I told him all about that and, and he was like well I'm glad I helped you get out of the army you know, so. <laughs> I think he had a similar uh, draft board experience he, himself. Uh, <laughs> his was a little more dramatic and <laughs> perhaps uh, f full of flair than mine but yes he did from what he told me you know oh, that's doesn't necessarily uh, bear repeating in uh, a family show. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, this isn't a family show. Well, <laughs> you can go anywhere you want to. <laughs> So the seventies arrived. Where were you at in the early seventies and the pre uh, the pre sick kids? Well, era? you know, truth be told, I mean, we all had these experiences where you go through what's happening, you know. And at the time in the late sixties, the the music scene then was was really kind of scattered. You know, the Beatles were on the verge of breaking up. The Rolling Stones were ascending as the world's greatest rock and roll band. And, you know, you had Led Zeppelin coming along. And concurrently, you know, you had all these guys like James Taylor and Tom Rush and Jackson Brown. Well, Jackson hadn't recorded yet, I guess, then, but his songs were everywhere. Everyone was doing Jackson Brown songs. He had this singer-songwriter thing going on. So there was a real, like, you know, there's this rock and roll thing, and then there's this, these guys being serious, you know, talking about their woes in their lives and their wives and their girlfriends and their addictions and all kinds of things, you know. I, I liked some of that stuff, you know. I mean, I, it appealed to me. I, it was kind of poetic, something I probably don't really care much for these days. It was writerly. It was writerly, yeah, you know. But somewhere after I heard that Stooges record, you know, I began to explore harder music. The first Black Sabbath record. Grand Funk Railroad, you know, stuff like that. And um, MC5 still? MC5, around? sure, yeah. You know, I began to get interested in that kind of stuff. At the same time, uh, I began to, to wish for music that sounded like it had in the mid-60s, you know, like what the Beatles sounded like, what the Birds sounded like, what the early Who sounded like, the early Stones, the Kinks. 
And there was kind of a whole movement developing amongst some bands that were like that, uh, or trying to, to recapture that spirit and that energy. So uh, the Raspberries, who kind of get a short shrift these days, but were nonetheless pretty influential on you, that you level. You saw them perform live, then? A couple times. They were spectacular live, yeah, really. And, and, you know, a lot of people just dismissed them out of hand, but they were a great band and really critical, I think. Uh, I heard those records when they first came out, and uh, yeah. they, they galvanized me as a preteen. You know? They're great radio songs, yeah. you know, which is... A large part of, of what that kind of music go all the way on. and uh, great great song i only want to be with you other bands like the whackers uh, blue ash um flaming groovies uh the sidewinders out of um boston and uh, also that you had stuff like the new york dolls david bowie coming along with glitter i've always maintained 1972 is probably one of the most critical years in rock and roll because you had all these tremendous records go, go back and look at the records that came out in 1972 you'll see a list of about 25 records that would all of them would would vie for best record of the year yeah. you know, just a great great year imagine t t-rex must have had a record t-rex yeah um slider yeah of that era electric warrior uh, the glitter thing. So all these kind of things were happening then. And, and you could sense something building up. You know, something was, there was an energy in the air. There was, there, there was, it was going back to, you know, short songs, you know, Genesis was, you know, not my thing. And I remember I had, a, had an experience one time where I was in a record store and this cat was in there, and he's holding up whatever nursery crime or one of them records, one of those fairy tale records. And he said, "Here's the future of rock and roll." And I said, "No, sorry." And I picked up New York Dolls and said, "This is the future of rock." Anyway, you could just sense something coming along. You know, it was pre-punk, basically. You know, the pre-punk attitude was developing then. So that's what was going on in the in the early part of the '70s. Um, it wasn't really popular type music then you know you still led zeppelin was probably the biggest band in the world at th that time and i was never much of a fan of that type of stuff you know i remember them getting horrible reviews at the time i remember that, that them being sort of like kind of dumb stoner guy music in, in, yeah, in its presentation they, they, they kind of became the whipping boys for that element you know yeah now i will say i i did see them in 1969 on I, one of their first tours surely and they opened for somebody like Al Cooper or something, and they only played 45 minutes, and they were just devastating. You know, when yeah. they could only play for a three-minute song, they were sensational. A year later, you know, I'm watching them do Moby Dick for 29 minutes, and <laughs> it had obviously changed, you know. But but early on, they, they were pretty a pretty great band, you know. It's a narrative of rock and roll is, is that sort of... A, strain to be serious that strain to be heavy and to be uh well particularly then yeah you, you know yeah, at uh, that moment yeah when did you kind of see the the birth of of punk well, well you also were, were doing some music writing at this point i was the, yeah the I, I had written i was writing for cream as a freelancer developed a, a very long distance short-lived uh, relationship with lester bangs via just sending him stuff when he was the record review editor and got a few publications. Uh, what, what did you write for, for Cream? 
Uh, just reviews. Uh, I remember I did a P.F. Sloan record, David Bowie's Images, I think. A, a few of them, I, I can't remember. I remember I, I wanted to do the Raspberries, and Metal Mike Saunders beat me to it. So. <laughs> but one of my prized possessions is a, a letter from Lester saying, um, really like your review, thanks, can't use it, send me something else. <laughs> that was what it was like for freelancers back then. You, yeah. know, you made about five or ten bucks an article. And you were at the mercy of these record review guys. But I just started sending them all over the place. I think Zoo World was in publication then. Rolling Stone, I'd never got published. Well, no, I did. I got one publication, I think, if I remember correctly. Anyway. Wow. At that time, it's another th- th- element that's sort of lost, I think, to a lot of modern audiences. But at that time, it was so hard to gather any information about rock and roll or the music that you were listening to that these publications were crucial I, uh, up until... You know, the late 90s, I was still buying tons of magazines and, and newspapers and really trying to, to gather this information about this music. Well, you know, rock criticism, I mean, despite all its foibles, uh, certainly initially was a real valuable thing. The best rock, rock critics to me were always the ones who turned me on to music. Greg Shaw, I thought, was a great rock critic. From Bomp Records? Yeah. yeah. Lenny Kay, uh, Lester, uh, Dave Marsh early on was real good at that, but... Uh, I was never too interested in the the Chris Gals and the girl Marcuses of the world who were pontificating. You know, tell me what's good. Tell me what I should go buy. Phonograph Record Magazine, which was a, a short-lived publication run by Martin Cerf, I think who was the son of Bennett, Bennett Cerf. Cerf. The, yeah. the joke man? Yeah. was a great, great publication for a couple of years. Uh, and, and they were geared towards, uh, you know, that kind of pop ideal that was developing. Uh, they were huge fans of Roy Wood, uh, Roy Wood's Wizard, and all, I just, all that stuff. just listened to the side one and two of Boulders just yesterday. One of the a great, lost record, a really yeah. great lost record. I got it for $2 out of a bargain bin, and well, brilliant record. Just as long as it's still around somewhere. You yeah. Know? yeah, it is a brilliant record, it really is. At some point you ended up... Uh, at a Philadelphia magazine, uh, The Drummer? I did, yes. The, David uh, Frick, who yeah, uh, the, the drummer, the senior editor at Rolling Stone. He later. did. David went on to, to pretty good things for himself. Yeah, I started writing for The Drummer, which was kind of like a, a Philadelphia small version of The Village Voice, maybe. It never reached that scale, obviously, but uh, it was a free publication. But they tried to be you know, politically uh, interesting and opinionated. And David Frick was the music editor at the time. And some way or another, I managed to get on board as, I guess, kind of the resident punk writer. David gave me carte blanche, pretty much write about and whoever I wanted to. So I was reviewing stuff like The Cramps and Suicide and Alex Chilton and the Dictators and the Sex Pistols and on and on and on. Where, where did you first discover that music? I mean, it wasn't being played on the radio for sure. No, but, you know, once again, I, it's just what I was waiting for. You know, at, at that point, I had met uh, Alice and Andy, who became the uh, Alice in the End in The Sick Kids. And she was uh, very much a music freak much like myself uh we didn't have the same taste initially she she was kind of a, a little more into the prog side of things but i schooled her quickly I, I did hear there was a jimmy buffett concert in your past maybe years before that's totally no, erroneous totally erroneous <laughs> <laughs> our first day we went to see uh, the harder they come so we oh, got well, off on the right that's foot. the right fight so. but you know i started playing her this kind of music that I was into at the time. This is 74, 75, 76. I was real into Big Star at that point. Yeah. Um, 
turned her on to Big Star, and, and she loved it. Uh, the Raspberry, she, she began to really did dig you, a lot. Did you hear those first two Big Star records when they came out? I know a lot of people discovered them I heard backwards. them uh, around 72. Uh, I, I, I have to confess, I heard them via record reviews. I went and bought them on the basis of, I think, Bud Scopa, Scupa, whatever his name is, John Tiven, you know. And I was just completely floored by them, you know, obviously. Allison and I had gone to New England to uh, visit a friend, and uh, he took us to a club called The Rat in Boston, and we saw these bands, uh, this is maybe 75, I'm guessing, I don't know, sometime around then. We saw Willie Loco Alexander, an early version of DMZ. Willie Loco Alexander, didn't he, he spend some time in the Velvet Underground? He did, yes. Wow. He was a replacement for Lou Reed oh. momentarily. You know. <laughs> he was a great, he was sort of like a punk Jerry Lee Lewis and, and a Boston legend. I think he was in a band called The Lost, a psych band from, from Boston. And I still have a seven-inch Jack Kerouac, I think. Great, great song. Yeah. yeah, he never really made it, unfortunately. I mean, he became he was relegated pretty much to to the boston bar scene but uh he did have one record on mca where he got you know to tour i think he opened for mink deville or something like that but uh he, he was a real wild man he was great mono man and, and dmz of course uh, who became the liars later anyway we saw a, a bunch of these bands at, at this club the rat and on our way back, we stopped in New York and we're, you know, tooling around East Village and everything. We saw all these posters for this band called the Ramones. You know, we had no idea what they were or anything, but they just looked so freaking cool. <laughs> and we were just like, wow, we really got to check this shit out, you know, eventually. Well, flash, flash forward, we did, of course, and, you know, we got, you know, all bets were off after that. Um but yeah, I was I was writing for the drummer and, and you know, in, in the heyday of punk and I just decided to write this kind of tongue in cheek sarcastic article about a band that didn't exist called the Sick Kids and you know, I described their outrageous performances. I did an interview with a lead singer named Mick Cancer and created characters for Allison and, and another friend of mine. And this is all right out of your imagination. Uh, strictly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I showed this to David, and he was like, wow, this is great. Let's run with it. You know, so I said, sure. And he called me a, a couple of days later and said, you know, I'm thinking about maybe having this as a feature article, and maybe we could have some pictures taken. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we kind of got in our whatever punk regalia we imagined at the time and uh, did a photo shoot, and lo and behold, the week, or so later, you know, there we were on the cover of the drummer with this punk rock expose inside. <laughs> and as luck would have it, on the day that the um, publication came out, um, some local uh, promoters and club owners called David to see if they could contact and book this band. <laughs> so we all kind of like looked at each other and said, well, I guess we should, should do something about this. And... Uh, Allison bought a guitar, 
she we were, at this point we're friends with the Cramps. She bought a guitar from Ivy, and we uh, got another friend of ours, Tim Trauma. And uh, he played bass, I believe. Huh? He played bass. Yes. And uh, off we went. Uh, Allison and I spent a lot of time trying to uh, figure out how to write songs. Her trying to figure out how to play the guitar. Uh, you know, her early heroes were people like Link Ray and Dwayne Eddy, and even though she couldn't play like them, you know, that's the kind of idea that we were shooting for. She was also a huge fan of the Velvets, Lou Reed, and that rhythm thing that he had going on. Yeah. So after a period of time, you know, we uh, managed to write some songs to, to play well enough, and I, you know, I hesitate to use that word, but to play enough to be able to go out in public. We assembled, we found a, a drummer uh, who was, was named Rich Luster, and he played much like Mo Tucker from the Velvets. He stood up, he played one snare and one tom and a cymbal, you know, and... Uh, I remember the first time we ever played live, we opened for the Cramps at the Hot Club, which wow. was the um, local punk watering hole at the time. Were you nervous? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, I had done acting in college, so... What kind of acting had you done? Oh, I was in plays like Inherit the Wind, uh, a four-man production called... It's going to escape me now. It was actually a, a anti-war play. Sleep of Prisoners was the name of it. Kind of an obscure anti-war play. Uh, I was in an, an Antiguan. Well, I can't remember. I can't pronounce it anymore. Whatever. Antigua. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'd done the usual run-of-the-mill type, you know, college drama thing. So I had been on stage before. You know, it, it wasn't foreign to me. The other three had never done anything like this in their lives. You know. So I remember in the dressing room before we went on, I just said to them, look, whatever happens out there, act like you're the Rolling Stones. And <laughs> off we went. I'll never forget the first time I ever talked to Allison about it. And this is even before we knew the cramps. And we were, I, 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 I said to her, you know, I, I can really do this rock and roll thing. She goes, oh, sure, you know, sure you can. <laughs> I said, no. I said, you know, I spent a lot of time in front of a mirror pretending I'm Iggy Pop and Mick Jagger. So I said, let me show you. So I put on the Starfucker by the Rolling Stones and, and did my Mick thing in front of her. And she said, holy shit, you can do this. So, so she was convinced, you know, that she was going to ride my ass as far as we could go. With uh, it, I, pivotal know. scene in the, in the, in the in Mick the Cancer film one day, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs>
So, I mean, that, that was the, the beginning of the Sick Kids. But, but I'd, I'd have to digress, too, again, and say, you know, at, at, at this point in time, I'd met Alex Chilton from Big Star and the Box Tops. And, um, A notoriously twitchy, thorny kind of character. Well, that's the public perception. I mean, the Alex Chilton I knew was a real nice, funny, intelligent, generous cat, you know. We had a great friendship that lasted several decades. Um, when did you first meet him? Well, it's you know it's funny. I, I don't know how to explain this exactly. It sounds almost silly in some ways. For some reason, you know, when I heard the Big Star records and and principally Big Star Three, which is kind of his coming apart record, as you know, brilliant instead of all time coming of age. You know? <laughs> brilliant yeah, all time great record. Absolutely, yeah, uh, one of the most devastating records ever made. Um, I was going through a divorce with uh, my first wife, and you know, that, that whole combination that Alex had of this kind of teenage adult almost viewpoint of life, you know, for some reason I just kept thinking to myself, this guy knows what I'm going through. This guy's feeling the same kind of things that I'm feeling. He'd be a really interesting guy to know or to talk to. Plus, you know, the music was so overwhelming to me. I just thought it was the best music I'd ever heard. And... Uh, I developed this desire to meet him, and you know, how do you explain something like that? You know, some people want to meet Mick Lowe, Nick Lowe. Some people want to meet Keith Richard. I wanted to meet Alex Chilton for whatever reason. I'm never imagining that anything could possibly ever come from it. Yeah. Uh, you know, nonetheless, in, in my writing with a drummer, I'd managed to con some kind of interview with him when he came to New York the first time in 1977, and he was playing the CBGB circuit and that whole thing. Was there, is it a live record from that time? It seems like there might have been recordings from that time now. Oh, there's some around. Actually, uh, Live at the Ocean Club just came out recently, okay. which is from probably about a week after I'd met him or, or a week before or something. At any rate, you know, I saw him play at um, uh, uh, the, the gig at CB's and uh, got introduced to him uh, backstage afterwards. He asked me what sign I was, which was his uh, in duty. And uh, apparently I passed the audition, and uh, we went to a restaurant up the street. And it became very evident pretty quickly that we had a lot in common, you know, a lot of shared interest, and uh, that we thought a lot of the same things were funny. Me and Allison just started, uh, every time he would play, we'd go, you know, and it would be like, hey, Mike and Allison, how are you? Hey, come on, let's go do this, come on, let's go do that. So within a, a matter of weeks, we became pretty fast friends with him, and... Uh, Went to visit him in Memphis for a week and stayed at his parents' place with him and ran around Memphis with him. And, you know, he was just a... In Memphis, he was kind of a god, but he was kind of considered crazy at the same time a little bit, you know. <laughs> Why was he considered crazy, do you Well, think? you know, just... I mean, his whole lifestyle, I mean, his whole uh, attitude towards life. I mean, it, it was sort of, you know... These Southern guys, like Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, I mean, they're all kind of like wild men in their own way. And when I met Alex, truth be told, I mean, you know, he was a pretty wild cat. You know, he was doing a lot of things that, you know, he later put away. Yeah. But, um, you know. He, also, an odd an odd start to an adulthood to be a, a teen idol at 15. He was 15 when he recorded The Letter, I believe, right? Yeah, and he had a number one record in the world when he was 16. So, yeah. you know, I mean, it's kind of like the Michael Jackson story in a way, you know. I mean... How do you know who you are when you're doing that? 
I mean, truth be told, there there might have been a bit of arrested development with Alex, you know. But he was smart. He he was a bright guy. He he had you know, despite the fact that he, I don't think he finished high school normally. I think he got a GED, you know. But I mean, he was nobody's fool by any means. And you know, he he had been burned by the music industry. His experiences in the box tops. It was like the monkeys. It was completely contrived and controlled, you know. He saw himself as having something more to say than what the box tops offered, which was clearly true. You yeah, know? yeah. But, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that he was crazy, you know. I mean, he just had this reputation of, like, being a bit of a wild man in Memphis, you yeah. know. But, uh, in fact, we, we met his, uh, his girlfriend, Lisa, who had a band called The Clits, who are just one of the, were one of the most spectacular all-girl punk bands I've ever seen. And uh, we saw them play at a marine base, of all things. <laughs> Did they record it all? Well, they did. Uh, in fact, he and Sam the Sham, uh, Alex and S- Sam the Sham, did some recording with him. And uh, recently, a four-song EP came out, which is, as far as I know, the only uh, stuff that they ever put out. I knew Lisa a little bit. I've lost contact with her over the years. She was in that band of Hellcats, I think, later as well. Well, I, that, Lisa never was, I don't oh, okay. think. Uh, one or two of the girls from uh, the Clits may have had some involvement. That was more the Panther Burns. Uh, Lorette. Velvet. Yeah, that yeah. was more her thing, I think. But I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, coincidentally, uh, Dixie Blood, my current band, uh, just learned uh, one of the Clit songs for our next record. What's the title? Two chords. Ah. <laughs> Great song. That um, was a, was he a musical influence on you at all? Do you think? Oh, completely, completely. I mean, what he showed me, particularly like stuff like the Panther Burns. You know, you could deconstruct music almost. You know that that time signatures and the right chords weren't necessarily what you needed all along you know <laughs> you, you needed attitude and passion and energy and uh, commitment and of course that leads us to the cramps yeah which uh, i met them through alex right after we met alex he was always telling me and allison oh you got to go see uh, devo oh you got to go see the dead boys They're the best band in the world you know and then one day he said you've got to go see the cramps they are the best rock and roll band on the planet bar none you know and he was like you know tell them go backstage and introduce yourselves tell them I, you know you know me and everything so they played at the hot club and me and allison went and we were absolutely horrified i mean not by the music we loved them but we were scared to death of them you know i mean they just looked like the scariest bunch you could ever imagine nonetheless we managed to summon up our courage brian Ge- gregory in the band at that brian point gregory as well? yes he was the- sweet little innocent brian <laughs> um we summoned up our courage and we went backstage and we said, "Hi, we're Mike and Allison. We know Alex Chilton." And uh, once again, almost immediately, we became fast friends with them. Um, yeah. What, what were Lux and Ivy like back in the '70s when you met them? The nicest, kindest, sweetest yeah. folks you could ever hope to know. Uh, and me and Allison, quite frankly and unashamedly, became acolytes. You yeah. know, I mean, we began dressing like them, looking like them, hanging around with them. Uh, we used to uh, go to their uh, New York City apartment for weekends and go to thrift stores and movies and just stay up all night and go to shows with them. And um, Where were they out of originally? Was it Ohio? Lux was from Ohio and Ivy was from Sacramento, maybe, I think. Uh, legend has it that Lux was in the Navy and picked up Ivy hitchhiking, and, and that's how they got going. And um, 
again, uh, uh, legend has it that uh, one night they went to see T-Rex, and um, they were all, T-Rex was terrible, and Lux said to Ivy, I'm better than Mark Boland, we can do this, and uh, <laughs> they decided to, to form a band, and, which is, I'm sure, the punk rock story for a lot of folks, you know, uh, just thinking, hey, I can do this too, you know, and I mean, that, that was one of the premises of the Sick Kids, I mean, we always thought, hey, we're just like anybody else, we used to do a song called The Band That Can't Play, in which we would describe our ineptitude and then attempt to prove it, of course. It didn't take much. But we would give our instruments to the audience and then leave and allow them to complete our mess. That's some conceptual stuff there. That's a <laughs> Club owners were not always terribly appreciative of it. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the whole notion being, you know, uh, there's no difference between you and me, you know, except I'm on four feet higher. And, that, you know, that doesn't mean a thing. You know, you can, you can do this if you want to. If you have the desire, the will, the time, the energy, you know, and put in the work, you can do this too. I mean, that was always our, the way we looked at it, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't, we just thought it was a hoot, you know. We just thought we were funny, you know. I mean, the first time we ever played, the only thing we cared about was that we wouldn't get laughed out of town so we could go back and sit at the bar at the hot club. You said you're in the same bill with the uh, with the cramps. Uh, how did they enjoy your performance that night? Well, they knew what we were up to. They were encouraging us all along the way. I mean, Ivy had bought, or Allison had bought a guitar from Ivy. and uh, I mean, I don't know that they knew what to expect when they when <laughs> we walked out on stage. I remember Brian say, saying to me afterwards, uh, you said you'd never done this before, you know. <laughs> I mean, they were—they dug us a lot, you know. And you know, we always got labeled as kind of cramps imitators, which I never thought we were particularly, you know. I mean, we—the we, kind of stuff we were doing was was not. I mean, some things were close, you know. But I mean, we were doing different kinds of stuff too. I think we were a little more obviously tongue in cheek too, you know. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the cramps were pretty serious about what they were doing. The cramps used to get accused of being, you know, like um, that they were actors who were, you know, taking busman's holidays here. But you know, I mean, they they were rabid fans. I mean, oh, yeah. they, they believed in what they in the the Bible of rockabilly. You know? uh, I mean, Ivy really developed into a pretty incredible well, an guitar astonishing player guitar well. player, yeah. a great guitar, and she does not get her due. When people talk about women in rock, that's one name that should come up all the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. And uh, it rarely ever does. And, uh, you know, fuck Pat Benatar. You know, <laughs> Ivy had more rock and roll in her toenail than Pat Benatar could ever think about. You know? <laughs> For me, that they were also the, the last time that that sort of 50s strain of rock and roll seemed downright scary. Like, they really seemed like frightening individuals on stage especially in those early years sure uh, and and you know i mean look at brian i mean you know look at that it's like uh, a demon <laughs> look at uh, i mean lux looked like you know ricky nelson took a wrong turn and ended up as frankenstein or something uh, <laughs> ivy you know i mean look at that she's just she's a bombshell uh, i mean what a what a that band i mean look at that band that band should have been huge you know, I mean, in a real world, in a proper world, yeah. that, that was a huge band. Uh, visually, great songs, great performers. Look at that Napa State thing. I mean, that's rock and roll. Where they right? play the mental institution. Yeah, I mean, that that defined, that, that is what that early band was about, you know. They were never quite the same after that, after yeah. Brian left, you know. It, 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 was it Nick Knox who took over the chair from there or something? No, 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 Kid Congo. Kid Congo. Uh, right. Nick was the drummer. That's right. But um, Brian brought something to that band, you know, that 
few bands ever had, you know, a, a real menace. Uh, yeah. His playing was menacing. His look was menacing. His performances were menacing. The whole cigarette in the back of the mouth thing. He know. was a bit of a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, he was a bit of a fiery individual, too, wasn't he? He was a... No. No, I thought I'd heard some stories from, maybe from you, about well, him being a bit of a punky guy. Oh, he could be. I mean, he took shit from no one. You know, people, I mean, look at what he got on the street. Just imagine what that got on the street, <laughs> you know. But he would fire it right back. I mean, he he stood up for himself, you know. But he was a sweet guy. I mean, they all were. They were really, really nice people. Uh, you know, I had no compunction about introducing them to my parents, you know. I mean... <laughs> Even though, I mean, I lived around the corner at the time, and, and I remember one, one Guess time... Guess who's coming to dinner. <laughs> I remember one time, uh, you know, it was like Saturday, they had played the, the night before, and they stayed at our house, and we're all coming out to go to breakfast or something the next morning. And people out there cutting their lawn, and here we come, you know, in full freaking regalia, and uh, people were just like recoiling. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, they were great, great people. Um, you know, I, I mean, I owe them so much. Um, you know, and, and their friendship was, was we, we were just best friends for a period of time. And, um, you know, I, I loved them dearly. I, I'd, I'd never have a bad thing to say about the Cramps or Alex Chilton, you know. the first record come together for the sick kids there's a four song seven inch that i think recently has been reissued in in spain uh well that was the rhythm girl three song right yes that was done uh, alice in the end uh, unfortunately passed away in uh 1980 and that in effect you know that was the end of that band so you know that that's right the first record is dedicated to her isn't yeah it? i mean that was the end of sick kids phase one which was the best version of the Sick Kids, no matter what came after it. Much like the Cramps, we considered ourselves a gang, you know, us against the world. 
the, I think the thing that was amazing to us and that really surprised us is we played our first gig and it was like people liked us. You know, they thought we were funny. They and every time we played, people seemed to like us. You know, where where'd you play around that time? Um, you know, the Hot Club, uh, New York, uh, any club that would have us around here. You know. We did a very brief tour of San Francisco, where That's we right. opened for the Dead Kennedys. Were you invited out there from them? Well, Allison uh, was a little bit of a con artist. You know, she called up uh, the Mabuhe Gardens and said, "Hey, we're the Sick Kids, a shit hot band from Philly." <laughs> she got us a thousand dollar guarantee and an opening with the Dead Kennedys. Wow! So, um, you know. <laughs> did you did you get to know Jello at all? We or? did, and uh, yeah, very nice guy. Again, you know, real sweetheart. Uh, he loved the band. You know, we we actually after Allison passed away and the f- second phase of the Sick Kids began, we opened for them in Ir- at Irving Plaza. Walked out on stage and the whole DC hardcore contingent was there and started throwing shit at us and booing us and everything. And <laughs> Jello came out afterwards and said, "You assholes! You wouldn't know rock and roll if it came out and bit you." You know. So he was always very supportive. And I nice. remember uh, as a, years ago, I still have the memory of being 16 years old and, and listening to Lee Paris on uh, Yesterday's Now Music Today on WXPN, which was yeah. a, the, the the hub of alternative music happening at the time. And he was doing a phone and interview with Jello Biafra, and he asked about the sick kids and mm. I think that was the point where Allison had just passed away and yeah, he said that yeah. he was looking to uh, to play again with you on his, on his trip yeah. east yeah. yeah and he reached out to us to have us open f- uh, in New York with him and then we played here at in Kensington at the Starlight Ballroom with him too another legendary spot yeah and a legendary show I mean just a war zone unbelievable people lined up with baseball bats across the street (laughs) firebombs going off all night just freaking crazy their name was i mean truly offensive incendiary yeah yeah yeah. uh but again you know they walked it like they talked it man you know they they never backed down yeah that that first album still holds up to me that incredible guitar from east bay ray great i'll never forget that night on stage during their set a minute into it somehow or other East Bay walked into Jello's um, microphone, or he was like flinging it around. He clocked East Bay and knocked him down, <laughs> knocked him out. It's really crazy, man. <laughs> anyway, we're digressing here again. So the, the first recording came about as a tribute to Allison. It was uh, I'd written a song called "Rhythm Girl," which was about her, and the only time in my life I've ever been able to play an instrument and write a song. Uh, took about a year after she had died that we determined to try to get it going again. I went down in our basement. We, we used to rehearse right here, actually, in the basement below here, oh, the, really? the, the first version of the Sick Kids. So I went down there with a bass and just ro- worked out a very rudimentary version of, uh, of Rhythm Girl, and I showed it to Rich Luster, the former drummer, who decided to start playing guitar. Joe Ankenbrand, the drummer. Joe Ankenbrand was a drummer from Bunny Drums, and Bob Bell from King of Siam was sure. produced it. And it was a three-song EP uh, containing Rhythm Girl, uh, Frenzy by the Fugs, and Radar Eyes from by the Gods. So we were raiding the ESP Records catalog. <laughs> Which better one to raid? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Certainly uh, for us, you know. Did that, did that raise your profile at all, having a, a record? Uh, a, record a little album? bit, I think, you know. Yeah. Uh, it puts you on the map, you know. Astonishingly, astonishingly, 35 years later, it becomes a reissue on Munster Records for record release day, you know, which yeah. is a really nice thing to have happen for us, you know. Absolutely. I think Forced Exposure, when they were listing the single, said one of the, uh, you know, top groups in the era. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, that stuff's related to cool. You know, who would have, I, I'm, I certainly never would have imagined that when I was writing that article many years ago, you know, that uh, that any of this could have ever happened, you know. And it ever. blossomed the way it did. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to this day, playing rock and roll is a privilege to me. You know, every time I rehearse, step on stage, it, it's an absolute privilege. I mean, I, I feel so fortunate, so lucky to be able to do this, you know. Never in my wildest dreams so the so the sick kids continue to morph and brought into the picture at some point as uh, someone you've collaborated with for decades now ben vaughn uh, as sal minio's only son yes i christened him that unfortunate moniker that, that's your that was your <laughs> title <laughs> yeah uh yeah he was with us for a couple of years as our drummer uh in fact he, he recounted to me an incident recently where we auditioned him imagine this you know I think during the audition, I was kind of like crawling around the floor, and I, he claims I bit his leg. No, I don't. I don't remember this, but that's what he's telling me. So it must have happened. Where did Where did you run into him? Where did you meet him at? Do you know? I know we were auditioning people. We had had a couple other people come in, you know, who were like Neil Pert, <laughs> and that wasn't working for us. Weren't with the program. <laughs> no, I don't know how he heard about us. Really, I, I Rich Luster was handling all that stuff. So. I don't really remember. I just remember him showing up one day, and we tried him, and we liked him right away. You yeah. know? He, uh, in our conversations, it was apparent that we had a lot of the same musical tastes and interests. And uh, he was a really good drummer. I mean, for having never really been a drummer per se, you uh -huh. know, he contributed a lot of great ideas. And uh, he ended up being on the recording that was produced by the Cramps. There was he did. Yeah, I could go to hell for you. Four uh, song, twelve four, inch. Four song, twelve inch. Yeah. And uh, one of the songs, uh, like the Duke of Earl, he, he pretty much wrote the drum part for. I mean, we didn't really have a structure for the song until he... sort of a martial drum part that builds well, up. Well, the kind it. of specterish thing going on there, yeah. you know. Also on LSD, he did the, uh, the... I remember saying to him, I want something like the end of 7 is 7 by, the, by love, you know. So he pulled that out of his hat. Oh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was great to, to have him in that band and... Uh, obviously led to a, a really uh, great relationship over the next several decades, you know. I remember one night he said to me, uh, I write songs, you know. I know I knew nothing other than that he was the drummer in the Sick Kids, you know. I mean, I knew he had played a, with, with some bands around earlier, you know, but nothing I'd ever heard of or knew anything about. So he goes, I write songs. I'm going to be playing at the Walt Whitman Poetry Center in Camden. I'd like for you to come hear me. So my wife and I went, and... Um, what were you expecting? A singer-songwriter, yeah, you know, yeah. type thing. And, you know, I said, let's, let's go see Ben, you know. <laughs> so I remember about a third of the way into it, I turned to my wife and I said, what in the hell is this guy doing in the sick kids? <laughs> you know, and of course, shortly thereafter, you know, he actually did leave, and um, I think he got written up in the New York Times. As the Ben Vaughn combo, yeah. yeah. Originally just a duo, and then... Yeah. Grew into a quite popular band. In and the, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happened the first time we attempted to I called her by someone else's name 
like sin Hold her close and don't you ever let her go And when you fuck her boy we'll fuck her slow So the sick kids seemed like I lost track of the sick kids. I'm not sure whether they were still an ongoing concern. 
until uh, it again transformed into Pink Slip Daddy? What, what, is, there, well, is there some a piece I'm missing between? Well, what happened basically was uh, Ben left Sick Kids. We got Robbie Ripbrock from Mother May I to play drums with us. And then a lot of internal friction began to develop within the band between uh, Rich Luster and myself and Clams Casino, who was the bass player. And uh, as unfortunate as it was at the time, I just bailed. I didn't want to deal with confrontations. Why do it if it wasn't fun? Yeah. Um, I didn't like a lot of the directions we appeared to be taking musically it was becoming a little too what i comprehended as metalish at the time which i wasn't interested in there were some other personality and personal conflicts that went on that need not be talked about so with clams casino and robbie riprock and ms palmyra del ran we became or we i joined das yahoos that's that's right who made one record, uh, a six-song EP, I think. Uh, uh, among my favorites, a, a really wonderful record. Yeah, yeah. Produced by Ben Vaughn. Yeah. yeah. Good good little band. Uh, really a fun band, and um, we did some great shows. Then again, after about a year or so, uh, uh, some more personality uh, conflicts began to develop, and that was that, you know, end of story. <laughs> And I basically just said, I've had it, I'm done, you know, I don't really want to do any more of this. Uh, You're a retired rock star at that point. Retired writer in the sun, <laughs> as Donovan Leach once said. And then about uh, maybe a year later or so, Ben Vaughn, who had become now a pretty prominent figure in local rock and nationally and internationally, uh, approached me about doing a Mick Cancer solo record. Uh, he always liked a lot of the Sick Kid songs, some of which had never gotten recorded and some of which he felt weren't recorded properly. So a lot of the songs on the first Pink Slip Daddy record were actually you know, Sick Kid stuff. We did another version of Rhythm Girl, which was almost acoustic, slowed down a lot and everything. Along the way, as we were making this record, it became apparent that we were going to want to play, probably at some point. And uh, we didn't necessarily want to be the Mick Cancer Band or Mick Cancer. I think Ben came up with the name Pink Slip Daddy from a Beach Boys song. Yeah, yeah. Um, Was it, uh, got the Pink Slip Daddy. Yeah, yeah. You know. Little Discoop, thank you. Yes. <laughs> and we recruited uh, Noelle Hoover from... Uh, Whatever band she was in at the time. She may have been in Mother May. I don't remember the whole chronology. I remember working in Philadelphia's Trash and Vaudeville at the time. Yeah, yeah, that seems about right. Uh, Palmyra Del Rand became a drummer and a goddamn great one. And uh, Pink Slip Daddy was born. Noel was in the band for two records, I believe. The first. Actually, Noel doesn't play on much of the first record. Uh, it's mainly me, Ben, and Lisa, I believe. Yeah. But when we started to want to play, she became a prominent member. And then she's on the second record, which is Anti-Disestablishmentarianism. Another, just a great, great band. I mean, killer rhythm section, great guitar player, as we all know. And good songs, really good songs. I mean, Ben and I developed a, a writing partnership that 
worked on a lot of stuff. We, we chose really cool, smart covers to do. The, the band, uh, as a live band, amazing band, amazing musicians, it's all built around the, the Mick Cancer persona. The, uh, it's uh, quite a theatrical frontman act that uh, drives all this music. Well, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of all that, you know. I mean, I understand. When I say theatrical, you have a song called Eating Dog Food Out of the Can. Dog food is taken out of the can and eaten. There was a sense of of, uh, of things happening at, the, at these shows. They were quite quite stunning. Uh, well, I, actually, Pink Slip Daddy was nowhere near as theatrical as the Sick Kids. Yeah. I mean, the Sick Kids lived on dime store theatrics. You know? <laughs> we used to do this song called Night of the Living Dead, you know, where I would take dolls and cut them open, put raw meat in them and spaghetti sauce, and tear them open and fling them all over the place. <laughs> The dog food. I don't know yeah. if we've gotten to the horror movie fan as well. I mean, that is another strain. Well, your, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and that a lot of you know. I mean, I was a horror movie fan forever, and certainly meeting Lux and Ivy only perpetuated it. I mean, they were beyond the pale with that kind of stuff. Were you a Doctor Shock watcher, or was that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Zachary, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, the Philadelphia did have their horror hosts here. Yeah. Um, what was it? Oh, On a Jones, which was about the Jim Jones catastrophe. We used to uh, pour Kool-Aid over people's heads. And... So, yeah, I mean, we, we, were, we were a bit of a spectacle, I suppose. <laughs> uh, it kind of toned down a bit in, in Pink Slip Daddy. I think Ben kind of tended to challenge me a little bit to just not be a screamer, try to sing a little more. Be more musical. Yeah, to, yeah. to, to do some uh, material that was a little more melodic at times, maybe. So as as that developed, I, th- I think the theatrical aspect of it began not to dwindle, but it became less prominent than it had been. Did your singing change as well? I think it did a bit. I think I became a, a little more of a legitimate singer in a way. You know, I never considered myself a singer. I'm an entertainer, basically. That's how I look at it. I'm kind of a savant musically, you know, but... Uh, I mean, the whole performance thing, it, it goes back to, you know, singing Starfucker in front of Allison. I mean, I, I, I just always pretty much developed my stage act from the people that I liked. Iggy, obviously. Uh, Mick Jagger, obviously. Lux. Stiv Baders. Uh, and somehow I managed to roll all that up. and Maybe with a little Johnny Ray. A lot of Johnny Ray, yeah. <laughs> Uh, a lot of influences like that. Hopefully, it came out a little individualistic. Absolutely. You know, I'd like to think it is, uh, but but it's based on my heroes. You know, completely. I mean, uh, I mean, without those influences, there, I wouldn't have an act per se. You know, I mean, it would just be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you told me that 
hold in my hand three letters from the various stages of your fine, fine, super fine career. The first letter reads that you are having difficulty making inroads in the rat race of Hollywood and that you will be back to my arms very shortly. The second letter states that you are making progress in the Hollywood Hills and that you will return my call. The third letter finds you poised on the precipice of your success and tells me that you must leave your past behind you. Well, my little lump of sugar, just let me tell you one thing. You might as well take that pen you wrote those letters with and put it right through my heart. Because without your love, I'm nothing. Without your love, I'm worthless. Without your love, I can't go on any longer. Just like the late great John Ray coming through on the radio late at night, I feel a deep and dark despair overtaking my soul. And I, I, I just don't feel like I can go on. I can't live without your love any minute longer, darling. So please! Yeah, I mean, again, Pink Slip Daddy is a, a pretty powerful-looking band, you know. I mean... Um, They've recently reformed and, and done some shows? We have. What happened? Well, let me re- recount how it ended, first of all. Noel left, and Jezebel came on as our bass player. And we made the... Oh, no, wait, wait. Noel was still in the band when we did the LSD, Beggar's Banquet Takeoff... Yeah, for a, for a record lover, that's a that's a beautiful record. It's a, a, a pink, mo- vi- pink vinyl, pink vinyl, tw- uh, ten inch in a cardboard white replica of Beggar's Banquet with the attending picture of us looking like we're having a Beggar's Banquet inside. <laughs> and and uh, even even the record was a was a miracle of pressing. It was uh, one side played from the inside out. And the other had two tracks. The other side had two tracks on it. And depending on how you put the needle on the groove, it would play one or the other. And you never knew which one it was going to play. Yeah, the two grooves ran parallel, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Amazing. That was all Pal- Palmyra's idea. You know? She's the genius behind that. <laughs> I'm sure the people at the pressing plate were very excited about this They new probably idea. still want to shoot us. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, again, fortunately, uh, uh, you know... Uh, it was a good record. It's it got a lot of attention, and it, I hear it goes for a lot of bucks these days. So if you find one, hold on to it. <laughs> uh, we also had an association with a friend of ours who uh, we met locally, but went on to prominence uh, as a member of the residence and the owner of um, Ralph Records. Ah. 
And he at one point uh, put out a... Uh, he recorded us before we actually even did anything. I think I think we'd played a gig or two. He, he recorded the original band in his um, apartment for the purpose of getting a tape for to get gigs, like a demo type thing. Years later, he calls me and says, I'd really like to put out that stuff I recorded with you. He owns Ralph Records at this point, you know, and he's starting a, a subdivision label called Psychoacoustic. I What's think. his name again? Tom Timoney. Tom Timoney, yeah. And um, reverentially referred to as Doc. Uh-huh. Um, I'm like, hey, terrific, man, you know, whatever. He says, yeah, I'll send it to you when it's done. So I'm thinking I'll get this 45 and be happy with it. So I get this package that's like this humongous thing, you know, about a big uh, silkscreen thing. All kinds of stuff inside, uh, pieces of the People's Temple, uh, a dog food thing, you know, just all kinds of crazy nonsense in there. And the record itself is a 10-inch that has two songs on one side and the other side this etching that's just spectacular that has gone on to, it was done by some guy who's gone on to some notoriety as a cartoonist, I think, or whatever. No, another package that, that gets serious yen in some seaports around the world these days. But, <laughs> just wanted to throw that oh, in there. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, then... Uh, what, are, what are the two songs on there? Uh, Dog Food and On a Jones. On a Jones, yeah, the, the, yeah. the Jones town yeah. tune. So uh, Noel left after the LSD thing with Pink Slip Daddy and uh, Jezebel joined. We made another record called Rock Damage and Other Love Songs. And we're preparing a, a fourth record uh, called Pink Slip Covers. Uh, ben and I had begun to, to work on um, a series of covers that, that uh, we were going to do. And at one point, Ben said, uh, well, I'm going to split for a few weeks. I'm going out to L.A. to see if I can drum up some TV work or something. And we basically never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> he had great success. He had great TV success, work. of course. He, he did he the, did, uh, he did. the uh, soundtracks... Uh, on uh, the TV shows Third Rock from the Sun Absolutely, and yeah. uh, the 70s show. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he went, he went out to great success. And, he did, uh, yeah. Uh, Pink Slip Daddy, I guess, was no longer on the, on the front burner at that point. No, no, by no means. And uh, we'll get to the rest of that story as, as we progress here. But uh, So I essentially, again, uh, went into self-imposed retirement, you know, for a while. <laughs> then again, you know, a few years later, I'm deciding, well, I'm really kind of itching to play so I thought maybe I would play a gig as Mick Cancer, you know, and just try to get some people to back me, you know. And I was going to play at Nick's Roast Beef in Philadelphia. Popular spot. Yeah. The guy who was doing the booking said, well, why don't you just reform the sick kids? And I was like, wow, what an idea, you know. <laughs> now, I hadn't spoken to Rich Luster in 15 years. You know? Was there friction there between you? Well, there had been, yeah, yeah. yeah. Contacted him. Uh, he seemed amazed and startled uh, at the offer and declined. <laughs> and uh, then called me back about a week later and said, I've thought it over and, yeah, maybe we should do this, you know. So I think we got uh, Tim Trauma and Joe Ankenbrand again and occasionally Bob Bell and started playing again as the Sick Kids. Went on to uh, do another record called Now and Then, which included some of the only other recordings that had Allison on them and some updated stuff by the new band. We played through 2005 or 6, I guess. One of the best gigs we did was uh, we opened for the Cramps at the uh, Troc. Wow. One of the last times I saw Lux, actually, and uh, my... One of my last memories of him is uh, we were doing Springtime for Hitler, and I looked over 
behind the you know the curtain stage, and he was there duck walking, duck stepping around the stage. <laughs> you know. After a period of time, you know, once again, uh, I just got I got tired of punk rock. My family was my girls were growing up, my daughters, you know, and I I just wanted to stop. And punk rock wasn't exciting me too much, and you know the kind of stuff that we were doing. It was. It just kind of felt like, well, here we go again. We're doing the same thing all over again, you know. Yeah. And, and we've had our say, so let's move on. So we played a, a last show that was kind of very shambolic at the uh, Kyber Pass. Actually, it had the plug pulled on us because some, the local yokel sound guy was told that we had to cut it off at 22 or something. <laughs> so our last show, even, you know, I didn't even get time to eat, you know. <laughs> no dog food that <laughs> And um, so we all, you know, just went our separate ways, you know. Streets full of people All alone Roads full of houses Never home Church full of singing Out of tune Everyone's gone to the moon Eyes full of sorrow Never wet Hands full of money Debt. Sun's coming out in the middle of June. Everyone's gone to the moon. Long time ago, life had begun. Everyone went to the sun.
but a, a, a very significant development occurred uh, during this tenure of the Sick Kids, too. Uh, Joe Ankenbrand left the band around 2002, I believe. And the really night, a wonderful drummer. I've, I've always enjoyed love him. Joe as a drummer. Love him. Uh, the night he left, we were playing with a band called Meth 25, I believe it was. He said, I'm going to be leaving, but I think I have somebody in mind that could replace me. And he introduced us to the drummer from Meth 25, uh, a girl named Gloria Goodrich, who we immediately christened Nurse Betty G. Oh, that's right. Uh, and she became the Sick Kids drummer. And she was a great drummer a, 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 and a, a great girl. Uh, I mean, we, we loved her dearly. And, uh, you know, she stayed with us till the end. Despite the fact that she claims that I didn't speak to her for the first two years that she was in the band. <laughs> I don't know where she gets that from. So we all, you know, went, went our ways and everything after uh, we did our last show. And in 2009, uh, unfortunately, Lux from the Cramps passed away. So Rich Luster and I were talking and said, well, we should really do something. You know, we should play some kind of Cramps show to pay our respects, pay homage to Lux, you know. Uh, we got uh, Joe Ankenbrand back on drums, Rich playing guitar, myself singing, and Gloria just kind of, excuse me, Nurse Betty G, just kind of um, adding percussion, tambourines, and various types of things. And she sang lead on Goo Goo Muck, which set off something in my head. When I saw her do that, I realized there was much more going on there than I had imagined. So after we played this show... Finally you talked to her. I spoke to her. <laughs> uh, after we played the, the Cramps tribute show, I really liked the band. I really liked what they were doing, playing with them. I liked them as people. And I'd always had kind of a strange secret desire to play country music. I, I, I was real enamored by certain songs when I was a kid, like Please Help Me, I'm Fallen." And, um, Hank Lachlan? Yeah. Tons of others I, that don't come to mind immediately. Tennessee Waltz, you know, stuff like that. I just always love those kind of country songs. Never imagining that I could sing them or would even dare to. But then I started listening really heavily to Graham Parsons and reading a book about him and his influences and thinking about Betty Lou. And I just decided that I wanted to try a imperfect version of that type of music, kind of a, a punk approach to that style of, of music. So we were, had a party here at this house when, when all the members of the band were here. And I talked to Betty Lou and her husband afterwards as they were leaving. And I said, look, I'm thinking about trying to form a band again. And it's a country band. They looked at me like I had three heads, you know, <laughs> and I had to actually, uh, she wasn't aware of Graham Parsons or any of any of this stuff, so I lent her some CDs, and I talked to Rich about it, and he was like, I'd never be able to play that stuff, you know. <laughs> In any event, we uh, I formulated a whole set of songs based on some of my own, what I was going through at the time, and the whole murder, mayhem, drunken, cheating country thing. What were you, know. you going through at the time? Well, I was going through a separation with my wife, you know. Um, it was just kind of an unsettled time, yeah. you know. Yeah. My parents had both passed away. 
All sounds like rich fodder for country music. Yeah, I was living here, you know, with my daughters, and they were about to move out. I literally holed myself up for about a year in the back room and just completely swallowed the whole honky-tonk genre whole, you know. I listened to nothing else. I went everywhere I could go to find old country records and trying to find songs that would fit this notion that I had, you know, the story that I was going to tell. Rich and I started meeting here, trying to learn them. Him trying to learn how to play country music from his own point of view. Me trying to learn how to sing them from my own point of view. When we felt ready enough, we brought on Joe and, and Miss Betty Lou G as she became rechristened. And she and I began to sing together, you know, much in the Graham and Emmy Lou and George and Tammy tradition and everything. And I was just blown away by her, you know. I mean... What she absorbed of it and her instincts for it were just sensational. You know, she's she's an amazing talent. She blows me away every every time I sing with her. What, what influences might you hear with her uh, as a singer? She's all over the map. I mean, she comes from a punk tradition, but she can she can sound like polystyrene or she can sound like Tammy Wynette. You know, it's an amazing gift she has. You know. Case in point, one of the songs we're going to be doing for our next record, are you familiar with the, the Zurich Sisters? Oh, yeah, very eccentric, uh, vocalizing and, sisters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I played that for her one night, and I said, I'd really like you to try to do something like that. <laughs> she listened to it, she goes, I can do that. Really? And she can. <laughs> they were sort know? of the Eva Sumac of uh, yeah, early yeah. country singers. Yeah, quite, they're quite sensational. Acrobatic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sensational stuff. But she's, she is an amazing talent. I, I jokingly told her when we started, you know, the whole point of this band is to make you a star. And she, she's on her way. I mean, the stuff people say about her, it, it's, it's all true. <laughs> so in any event, you know, Dixie Blood got off the ground, started playing around, started attracting some attention, got some good reviews, and uh, decided to make this record, which is a 22-song, I guess, song cycle of... Uh, primarily covers uh, of the entire history of country music that I just kind of tried to etch together to to show these two characters who, you know, go through this Erskine-Caldwell-type relationship, you know, and um, is that the right guy am I thinking of? See the southern guy? The guy that wrote God's Little Acre and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, I think, I think, I think that's, that's his right, name. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, the whole white tra- southern white trash kind of idiom you, you know baby doll the eli kazan movie yeah know. amazing film just saw a film print of that recently it still punches you in the gut astonishing movie you know uh but but these two characters who, who go through this whole drunkenness cheating murder salvation redemption situation you know that i just kind of like made up you know. <laughs> We, we, you know, the, the key to it was really that song, Pardon Me, I've Got Someone to Kill, which I, is by Johnny Paycheck. And, and as soon as I saw the title, I knew I had to have this song and know it. And we changed it radically. I mean, I sing it by myself with a harmonica smear, as I like to call it. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, that, the whole basis of the record was this is our take on this kind of music, and, and we love this music. You know, this is important, vital music to us, you know. How is it to perform it live? You know, we are not that far removed from the sick kids. Uh, Betty and I are sort of like a, almost a Mick and Keefe type thing going on, you know. Um, 
I still go out into the audience. I, I still kind of, uh, you know, am con- confrontational. She's developed an amazing persona on stage. We sing together with our arms wrapped around each other, you know, stuff like that. Um, I think we're a really potent band. I mean, to have two front people is, is a pretty strong thing, you know, and, and one is, I mean, I'm nobody's fool. I know I'm pretty strong as a front person, and she's damn near my equal. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's she doesn't do the same kind of things that I do, but her presence is equally as strong. You know, just to have somebody to play off of. It must yeah, be really I've never had that foil, you yeah. know, before. And her gifts are are just amazing. I mean, she's, I love her. I mean, she she's a great great talent. The best show we ever did, I think, and maybe the best show I ever did. The most fulfilling in a lot of ways we, we did a record release uh, show at blood and saddle last december and we played the whole record straight through and um, it was really very emotional to do that you know uh, and really just terrific and then of course we encored with i want to be your dog just to set things straight <laughs> <laughs> but again uh, to, to uh, di- digress slightly when we recorded uh, the record we um, We'd been wanting to do it. We were hoping to work with Doc again, actually, Tom Timoney from The Residence. And we'd been in touch with him. We'd seen him a few times. He came to one of our rehearsals, so he knew what we were up to. But he was only in town. He'd come to town once every eight months for a day, you know. So the odds of it happening were, you know, not real good. And then one day he was. He said, I'm going to be in town, and you want to make a record. And we're like... Jesus, we hadn't rehearsed in three months. We hadn't played for whatever reason. I forget why we we were just inactive for a period of time. So we went in the studio. We recorded twenty-two songs in one day, and that was the record. Basically, wow. we had a horrible time with the mixing of it. Uh, the studio we went to that shall remain nameless. It was good to record it there, and and Tom is much like Steve Albini. It was kind of like I'm recording you. I'm not producing you. You know, I want to get down what you want to sound like. So it was going to all be in the mix, basically. Yeah. You know, We just ran into a nightmare situation with the studio and the guy that we were working with, the engineer. Long periods of time where nothing could get done. Just we couldn't get to mix. The mixes didn't sound good. And we were got to the point where it had been over a year since we'd recorded it. And we were almost ready to ditch the whole thing. Just f- thought it wasn't going to happen. It was doomed. So Joe Ankenbram came up with the idea that uh, we go to Invisible Sound in Baltimore, where Pink Slip Daddy had recorded, and he had recorded with, I think, Jukebox Zeros, or one of the bands he'd been in. And I, I remembered the engineer from there. He remembered us, and uh, he had now had a state-of-the-art studio. So we went down there, uh, remixed the whole thing. He became... I refer to him now as D Blood. He became a fifth member of the band. I mean, he was he was very tuned to us. He gave us great ideas, very creative ideas, and he literally became a part of the band for, in that process. We ended up recording the the Baltimore EP there because we liked working with him so much, you know. And we had decided at that point that we wanted to we had this new material that we wanted to do, so we decided to re- release them concurrently, you know, to get us up to date. We've been playing a lot. We, after the uh, record uh, release show, we did a series of Lux Lives shows where we'd do cramp stuff uh, around February, the time that he died. 
we did a show here in Philly, and then we also did one at Auto Shrunken Head in New York. What, what, how did you approach the the cramps music? Uh, just the best we could. You know, <laughs> I mean, we didn't try to replicate it necessarily. We just tried to play it as as the sick kids or as Dixie Blood might play it. I mean, some of it sounds like the cramps a little bit but most people kind of looked at it like as just us trying to interpret the cramps you know the the new york show was over the top it was one of the best things we've ever played um it was so crowded we hadn't played in new york in 35 years and people loved us and and it they were so excited that we were playing up there again i mean it was really very gratifying uh we played 25 songs you know in our set it was so crowded you couldn't get from the door to the stage. It took you 10, 15 minutes to walk through the crowd. I mean, it was just nuts. Betty Lou's speaking in tongues again. Ow! All them heathen men folk, bastard heathens, beguiling ways of the men folk with rock and roll. You've got to pray every day. Pray every day, pray to God up above. You've got to go all the way, get on your knees and pray, and show Him all your love. When your life is lonely and everything is wrong, you don't know what to do. Get down on your knees and look up to Jesus and say a prayer or two like this. You got to After that, we, uh, we, we, that was the end of the cramp stuff. So uh, Dixie Blood played one show after that to uh, commemorate the Rhythm Girl EP coming out. So we played some Sick Kid stuff. I think we played uh, If the Flies Are Alive. Oh, do you know tune. that song? I do know that song, yeah. yeah. That's a favorite recording, yeah. I like Amongst that your whole career, it's really, yeah. really. Yeah, I like winter. that a lot. We were hoping to get, when we did that initially, we got them to come out of retirement and play with us, and we were hoping to. Well, tell uh, the story of, the, of that song, yeah. Huh? Tell the story of that song, at the Flies are Well, you know, we had played with the, these two girls in the hot club era, in the late 70s, uh, called the Flies. They were very mysterious, strange girls, you know, who <laughs> didn't really communicate too much to anybody, or at least to us, um, 
but I always thought they were just great. You know, they had an astounding act, and I love their music. And I just always thought about them over the years, you know, and uh, I guess one day that phrase came into my head, if the flies are alive, and uh, I just, it's one, it was one of those situations where I guess the idea had been lurking in my head for so long that when I finally got down to writing it, it came out like in 10 minutes, you know, full-blown, complete, you know. Yeah. We were making the Now and Then record, The Sick Kids, and... Uh, I walked into the studio, we were just about finished the whole thing, and I said, I've got a new song, and they're like, well, I don't know if we have any room for it. <laughs> I said, well, let's just try it. So I, and Bob Bell and I went out in the hallway, he had an acoustic guitar, and I said, I'm thinking real heavy Velvet Underground, Modern Lovers, Roadrunner type riff here, you know, which he came up with. We went back into the studio with the rest of the folks, played it one time, Second time we played it, we, re we recorded it. And that's what we got right there. So we did a record release party and uh, wanted to play it, and we wanted to see if we could get them to come out to play with us. We got a hold of them, and they were floored that we had, you know, wrote a song <laughs> about them. And uh, were much friendlier than I than they used to be, you know, and remembered us, uh, you know, very well. And you know, we're. we're very nice about it, you know, like we always really liked you guys kind of stuff, you know. You know, about midway through the set that we were doing, we played the song, we, you know, I talked a little about who they were and everything, and then when we finished the song, I just said, ladies and gentlemen, the flies, and they came out and played three songs, and it was just great, you know, they, they were <laughs> fabulous. And they did one other show with us where we, we did the same thing. I, I think they actually played it with us the second time. Oh, that's you know, great. So. And we were hoping that, you know, when we did it this time, it, 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 we didn't have much time to get it together, and we, we weren't able to get a hold of them. Uh, I know that they, they had a brother who was, I think, challenged in some way, I, I, physically. Or, I'm, I'm not sure what their situation was. Nobody had seen them for a while. I knew that they took care of him, so uh, we weren't able to, to, to get up with them. But if you're listening, girls, we love you and always will.
part of a lot of bands who, who never quite died. Picks Up Daddy came came together again after many years as well. They did. Played, right? Yeah, out of the blue. We had talked about it a few times. In fact, got so far as one time we had a 
show booked at the Kyber. Ben was not able to do it because at the last minute thing with Third Rock. So that never happened. We were, if, if memory serves me, I, I might have this one wrong. I'm not sure. We were offered a, chan- a thing to play in Paris, I think. We're, we're pretty big there for some reason. Wow. In fact, Ben knows all, he has to sign Pings Up Daddy Records when he plays <laughs> France. You know, we, at that point, we couldn't get in the same room to order pizza, so that never happened either. And a couple of times, uh, Palmyra and I have had discussions like, uh, you know, we should really try to get Ben to do this, Smos to do this, you know, uh, maybe, maybe not. So one day, out of the, actually, uh, Dixie Blood did a show with uh, Ben a few years ago. And uh, for an encore, we did uh, I Walk With a Zombie together, you know, he had me come up. I don't know if that's the reason, but not long after that, he called me and said he would be interested in doing the Pink Slip Daddy thing again. So we played uh, the first show at Kung Fu Necktie two years ago, and it was wildly successful. And uh, we decided to do a show last year on Halloween at Boot and Saddle, which I don't know if you know anything about this show, but it has taken on a rather infamous life of its own. And no, I don't think I do. Well, oddly enough, we were playing um, I Walk With a Zombie, and uh, a female member of the audience uh, began to take umbrage with my existence, started yelling things at me, and um, kind of just being basically disruptive, you know. So after a little while, I decided I'd had enough of this shit, you know, so I started taunting her back and threatening her with a mic stand and stuff like that and she wouldn't relent you know so i just finally decided i didn't come here to do this i've had enough of this stuff you know so i i just said all right honey enough just come on up let's dance you know so i started to bring her up on stage she got up on stage and she started to disrobe to the point where she got down to bra and panties and she was a very muscular young lady and she her obvious intent was to rumble you know <laughs> Naked. I, I guess. <laughs> Mud wrestle, who knows, you know. But she wanted some action, you know. She wanted a piece of me. And I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to do here? Clock her with a mic stand, you know, and wrestle with her. And finally, I just said, you know, somebody get her the fuck out of here right now or we're not playing any longer. Well, oddly enough, my daughter got up on stage with another girl, another woman, and managed to... This girl was so smashed, she had no idea where she was, clearly, you know, or what she was doing. But they managed to get her off the stage and out of the room and eventually out of the club. But it it really unnerved us, you know, to the point where uh, it disrupted the set. You know, we never quite got our mojo back after that, you know. Hopefully it won't happen again. (laughs) But unfortunately, things like that tend to take on viral, uh, you know, implications. It became an internet craze for a while. Oh, it was photographed? Oh, yeah. Everything, it's on somebody's cell phone. The whole thing. (laughs) And I I have run in, I've been stopped at least 10, 15 times by people saying I was at that show. It's like Woodstock now. There are people (laughs) talking to me about who were not there, I'm sure, you know. But Ben and I actually went to see Bob Dylan at the... um, Academy of Music, and we were walking in, and two people came up to us and said, hey, you guys opened it for Bob. We want to see some WrestleMania tonight. You know, that's the kind of thing we've been doing. People thought that we actually hired her, you know, to do this whole thing. So in any event, uh, that show has, has become, unfortunately, legendary. 
Uh, undaunted, however, we have decided to continue again. We're going to play uh, this Halloween at uh, Bourbon and Branch, which is a really small place and could be pretty chaotic if the same amount of people show up as did Blood and Saddle, Boot and Saddle. And did I hear you've recorded again as well? That's true. The rumor is con- confirmed. Uh, I'm not at liberty to divulge what it's going to be. I will say it's a roadhouse rock and roll record. Uh-huh. Uh, Some a conceptual record? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I think it's going to uh, surprise a lot of people. None more than us. <laughs> but no, uh, we, we recorded it a couple of weeks ago, and it, it really sounds great, I think. Uh, I, I think it's, it was a blast to do. And, and Dixie Blood is still recording. And- after, after we did our last show in April, we took a uh, six-month hiatus, self-imposed, primarily to learn new material. I mean, we, we had been essentially playing the records, you know, for almost five years. So in order to not bore ourselves to death anymore and or our audiences, you know, um, we decided it was time to learn some new stuff. So we, um, thus far, we've learned about maybe um, 13 or 14 new songs, mainly covers, uh, some very interesting choices. It's going to be called uh, Honky Tonk Hit Parade, although it's not really strictly a country record anymore. There's... Um, some odd choices on there. What influences are seeping in? Well, uh, as uh, as I said the other day to them, there are hundreds and thousands of beautiful songs in this world. Uh, to my way of thinking, about half of them are honky tonk songs. And <laughs> these are some of our favorites. You know, um, a lot of different type things. Um, we're, we're doing the clit song, you know, which is a punk song, but it, to my way of thinking, they're honky tonk girls. What's so. the title of it? Two chords. Two chords. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't want to really tell too much about what we're doing. You know, once we learn maybe about three or four more songs, uh, we're going to go back in the studio with a certain personage, hopefully producing us, and um, make another record. That's great. And uh, continue to playing and uh, continuing to uh, make Miss Betty Lou G the diva she deserves to be. <laughs> <laughs> How many years have you been playing on stage now? Do you think? What would that be? Overall? Overall, yeah. Well, I debuted, we debuted in 1979. Yeah. So I guess if you did the math, we could figure it out. 37 years? Yeah, something like that. Wow, that's amazing. It's been a great, great trip, man. You know, as I said earlier, you know, it's it's an absolute total privilege to be able to do this. And the people that I've run across, the friends that I've had, Alex and the Cramps and Jello and many, many, many others, to play with people like Joe and Rich Luster and Bob Bell and Pink Slick Daddy Gang and um, all the other folks. Tim, Tim Trauma was was a, a vital cog in the whole thing. You know, when I, I actually wrote something around it when the uh, record uh, th- Rhythm Girl came back out again, that Rich and Tim Trauma were the perfect components to come along at that time. They they made the other half of the Sick Kids. I mean, people will say that they were inept and that they couldn't play and blah blah blah. But all they, about chemistry. Yeah, yeah. They were perfect. They were they were the and that that band remains right at the top of the heap for me. We had a a thing that we created all by ourselves, you know, that was unlike anything else really going on at the time. 
I mean, to have the balls to say we're the band that can't play, and here we're going to prove it to you. you know? <laughs> but uh, it's been a blast, man. You know, I mean, and the last few years have have just been great. You know, I mean, I to do Dixie Blood, which is one of my favorite experiences, and to play a kind of music that's so different than what I was used to, and then to play with Pink Slip Daddy again, and it's been a real purple patch. You know, I feel blessed. <laughs> Let me say thanks so much for uh, coming and speaking to me, Mike. It's been a, it's been a great pleasure. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Uh, it's the pleasure's been all mine. That's it for our show. Thanks again to Mike for making time in his schedule to talk to the Fun to Know podcast. You can catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. And check back again for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.